Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast continues to enjoy inclusion on lists of the best podcasts to listen to. Most recently, uh, we were mentioned on the list of 12 small business podcasts to listen to if you want to grow your sales on allbusiness.com, and then it was picked up on Forbes.com. So pretty excited about that, Um, and and that is because uh, the guests who join me and share their expertise are providing the listeners with some great information for whatever they're going through in their business, uh, you know, whatever they need, they can pretty much find it here. Uh, and today we um, have the same sort of situation. My guest today is John Warlow. John is an entrepreneur and author with over 20 years of research experience into the small and medium business market. He founded the Value Builder System to level the playing field for business owners as they approach their exit. Over 46,000 business owners have taken the Value Builder questionnaire, and with the support of certified value builders, such as brokers, mergers and acquisitions professionals, and coaches, they're using the statistically proven methodology to improve company value by up to 71%. Thanks so much for joining me today, John. Thanks for having me, Diane. I am thrilled to have you. We've had a couple of conversations, and I'm pretty excited about this one because I understand it's uh, based on some new research. Um, So I would like to start with asking you to explain the happy, rich, or famous paradox, please. (laughs) Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wrote a blog post a while ago uh, just describing and, and asking owners to consider whether they wanted to be happy, rich, or famous. And, and what it relates back to is this notion of how you want to ultimately grow your business. So the, the most famous entrepreneurs we know are venture-backed companies, right? Where they go out and raise a bunch of money, and because they're flush with cash, they get picked up by TechCrunch and ultimately Inc., and, and they become quite well-known brands in and of themselves. Uh, the problem with the venture-backed company is most of them fail. Uh, most of them fail spectacularly, leaving the owners with nothing. So it's a great way to get famous, but not always a good way to get rich. Uh, the, the second group are the folks who get rich out of entrepreneurship. They tend to be owners who find a quiet little niche uh, in a corner of a market nobody cares much about, 
they squeeze out 10, 15, 20% profit margins and grow their business to five, 10, 20 million in annual sales, and they are rolling it. Nobody would know they're rolling in it, but they've got enormous amount of wealth because they found a corner of the market nobody cares much about. And, and um, who was the guy? Was it Stanley, Howard Stanley, who wrote the, the book, The Millionaire Next Door? He chronicled these guys really, really well in that book. The third group are the yeah. ones, yeah, the, the third group are the ones that are happiest and they tend to be the ones doing the work. So if they have a plumbing company, they're the ones, uh, maybe this is a bad example, but <laughs> sleeves rolled up <laughs> doing the work or if they're a copywriting, you know, copy, you know, they're not organizing a group of copywriters. They're actually people doing copywriting and they tend to be the happiest because they're actually doing the craft they love to do, but you're never going to get rich or famous running a company in that way. And so yeah. the post was just really about getting owners to think about their priorities. Is it, is it to be rich, to be happy, or ultimately um, to be famous and, and you know, finance your business accordingly? Okay, so it's so great. I, I can picture all three of those. And then I think <laughs> you really do need to know that because it, it informs the decisions you make about how you're going to move forward in your business right? In all sorts of ways. And um, I would imagine it has a lot to do with that exiting decision. Right. And that's, yeah, that's obviously what we focus on at Value Builder. And, and you're absolutely right. You know, when it comes to the decision to sell your company, those folks who want to be happy and, and do the work don't have anything to sell. They, they have potentially a glorified job. The ones that have a venture-backed company um, you know, will ultimately be very sellable if they are successful. Um, the privately held businesses where uh, you know, they're, they're generating lots of profit will also be sellable companies, but generally to a different audience. The typical buyer for that quiet business in a tiny niche where they're just churning out profit year over year would generally be more of a private equity buyer, uh, where you know their goal is to buy profitable businesses that generate cash flow, whereas a venture-backed company is is often acquired by a strategic buyer, something like a, a large enterprise organization that wants to buy uh, a new product, for example, or or enter a new market, um, and so that would that would they would look at the business through a different lens. I see. Okay. That's helpful, thank you. So um, what would you say is the single most important trick to a satisfying exit? Yeah, so it's interesting. We've just done some new research into this topic and, and what we discovered is that 75% of business owners when you survey them one year after selling their company, end up, in fact, regretting the decision to sell, which is astonishing when you think about it. I mean, so few companies actually get to the finish line and actually do become sellable. And, and you think these would be the all-stars, right? Like these, should, these people should be kind of happy with their feet up and you know, created wealth and so forth. But actually they're miserable. In many cases, three out of four are, are, are miserable. And when you ask them why they're miserable, there's a whole set of, of reasons. There's, in particular, there's four of, of them. I think you asked the most important one. I think 
I'm not sure I could distinguish between the four, but, but arguably the first thing owners need to do to ensure they do have a satisfying and ultimately a happy exit is to develop what we call a, a future vision. So most owners, when they go to sell their company, they're leaving something, right? They're all push and no pull, meaning they're, they're really focused on getting rid of something. So they, you know, they, they're frustrated by employees or they're frustrated by government regulation or, uh, you know, they need to retire, but they're leaving a business. What we try to get owners to think about is what they're excited to go do next. And what we discovered is that the happiest owners are the ones that have a really clear sense of what they want to go do next. I recall um, I did an interview with a guy named Sean Oshman and um, it was for a podcast I do called Built to Sell and he was, is the most popular episode we've ever done. And it's a story of, of what Sean decided to go do after he sold his company. He wanted to live on a sailboat and sail all around the world. He grew up running an IT company in landlocked Colorado. And so he sold the business and bought this yacht and is now sailing around the world. What's interesting is he didn't sell his company for a lot of money. He sold his company for around two to three times what brokers call seller's discretionary earnings, just kind of like profit. Um, so it wasn't some spectacular exit, but it was enough money for him to buy the boat and go sail. And so he's happy, not because he sold his business for a premium, but because he had a vision for the future. And that's really, you know, you ask the question, Diane, what, like, what's the secret? That's the first, I think, step is really getting clear on what's your future vision. What are you excited to go do? Wow. So he, so he, knew what he wanted to do. And so it sounds to me like his exit was all around making sure that he could do that. Exactly. It, it was yeah. around, it was having something that he was excited to go do because most owners, when you talk to them, they're like, you know, we, we survey them all the time. We say like, what's the most important thing for you when it comes to selling your business? Is it that your employees are well taken care of, that your legacy continues on after you've left the company? Um, that you're not bored in retirement. And the number one answer by the measure of, you know, that outperforms all of the other responses we ever get is maximize the value of my company. 60% of business owners, when asked, what's the most important thing of a happy exit? It's maximize the value of my company. Yet we can look at lots of stories of people that do exactly that. They maximize the value of your company but they end up still unhappy after they've sold their company, even though they're sitting on a pot of cash. And it's again, because they haven't gotten clear on what they're excited to go do next. Okay. So how does an owner maximize the value of their business today? It's a complicated science, but you can distill it down to a very simple idea. And that is how well, does your company run without you? Essentially, that's the, that's the secret sauce, right? Because when a buyer looks at your company, they realize that, that you are selling it. So you, the owner, is going to leave. And so whatever you can do to make the company run without you more successfully, the better. So that, that idea triggers a whole line of thinking. So you know, recurring revenue is 
as an important driver of the value of your company. Why? Well, that's revenue that comes in without you, the owner, having to sell it every month. Um, making sure your business is not dependent on you personally through having a management team or having a second in command or a general manager is also an important strategy. Why? Because your business runs better without you, or at least can run effectively without you. So it's a, you know, there's lots of nuances to this idea, but in its simplest form, it's how well does your company run when you're not there? I really like that because I know one thing I say to my clients a lot is because they'll say, well, my top clients only want to talk to me and I'll say to them, okay, good, but God forbid you get hit by a bus and you're in a coma, then what? You know, I mean, you got to have depth. You, you have to have people in your company who can do things as well, if not better than you, so that you can not be there and it can still run well. You, you bet. And, and, you know, those big clients can often be a bit of a mirage because, you know, while they are profitable and they give you revenue, they also undermine your, 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 the value of your company. And it comes back to the idea we started the conversation around, do you want to be rich, happy, or famous? Because if the goal is ultimately to be rich through running a company, then, then it, the only way it will be attractive to an outsider is, is if it can run without you. Uh, you can have a perfectly happy life being, you know, the, the candlestick maker, the bread maker, the, the, you know, the person doing the work that the client, the very large client wants to see, expects to see. You can absolutely have a highly satisfying work life, but, but don't be fooled into believing that's a company that anyone would want to buy. And there's a big distinction because I think a lot of people make the mistake of saying, oh, well, I'm going to grow my business because I'm the best salesperson. I'm going to be the one that manages the key accounts and the key relationships. I'm going to grow this business, grow it and grow it, grow it, pour all the revenue profit back into the company, and then I'm going to sell it and make a lot of money. And the reality is that, that it's a bit of a mirage because as you, as you continue to grow and focus on the top line and, be, and the company becomes more and more dependent on you being a rainmaker, um, you've got the worst of both worlds. Not only are you not taking money out of the business in the form of dividends uh, because you're pouring it back into growth, but, but your growth is taking you nowhere because that business, even if it's 10 or $20 million in revenue, is not going to be a company you could sell if the revenues depend on you personally generating it. Boy, that makes so much sense. Okay. Um, I think a lot of owners uh, have their ego very involved in, in their decision-making. So um, sh share with us, if you will, uh, a surprising test so they can evaluate how much their ego uh, depends on the company. Mm, yeah, yeah. So we talked about these four drivers of, of a happy and lucrative exit. We did this research for this new product called Prescore, and it was really one of the key findings was around having a future vision. The other key finding was the one you're alluding to now, which is around having your ego too tightly wound into your company. And so, and I don't mean ego in a negative sense, as we think of ego as being a, a sort of a negative thing. I just mean your self-worth, the, 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 the 
the self-worth that you have and for many business owners is highly tied to their status as an owner. So it's what makes them proud, what makes them, gives them recognition at a cocktail party as being the owner of the XYZ business. And so for a happy and lucrative exit, you've got to somehow separate your, your ego, what gives you a sense of self-worth from being the owner of a company. Otherwise, it's going to feel like you've lost a child when you sell your company. It's going to feel all negative, even if you've got a pot of money. And so, uh, you know, the things that you can do to make sure that your ego becomes less intertwined is to, is to really build up other areas of your life, where, whether that's being a coach, a father, a mother, uh, you know, a philanthropist, uh, you, the other hats that we wear really focusing on that. I've got a friend, for example, who decided that on, you know, he was seeing the end of his journey and his company was a very successful company. Um, but he decided to go to Cordon Bleu chef school and become a chef. And, and that's part of now how he, he has a sense of self-worth as he defines himself as a chef, even though, most people on the outside would look at him as an entrepreneur who's had these successful companies. He, he, he self-defines at a cocktail party as a chef. Uh, so it's important you, you think about and cultivate these other hats that you wear. The test is, is, is as follows. If you were at a cocktail party and, and someone said, Diane, um, you know, what do you do? Would you be more likely to say, I'm a business owner, A, or I own a business, B? And for those who, who answered it, A, um, I'm a business owner, you can see how even just the way you answer that question, you are self-describing as, and really interlacing the two, right? Like you are a business owner. It's like, I'm reminded of, of the basketball player who was the best basketball player in his high school. And he went on to division one scholarship. And then he went to, you know, play in the NBA. And, and then someone turned to him and says, you know, what do you do? And he says, well, I'm a basketball player. Well, that's great while you're a basketball player. And it's <laughs> horrible when you're a 35-year-old wash-up who is on the bench because all of a sudden yeah. you have nothing. And so the healthier way to answer that question is, well, I'm a business owner. And what we hope over time is owners then say, and I'm a chef and a father and a coach and a mentor, and a, you know, like all of the things that make us whole as human beings. That, that is, that's terrific. I, I could see it like right when you said it and I thought um, you can see the value that they place in that, um, it's not a title, but you know, the, the position really by, by how they answer that. That's really interesting. And interestingly, when you, you know, when you said, if someone asks you, you're at a cocktail party, you know, what do you do? Neither of those came to my mind. Like <laughs> the first thing that came to my mind was, um, uh, you know, help business owners make better decisions. You know, as far as ownership, I don't really care. So it's an interesting thought process to, to go through and to hear, um, you know, how people, now I'm going to be listening to how people answer <laughs> the question. Yeah. <laughs> like the other, the other telltale signs of an owner whose ego is probably connected uh, to their status as the owner would be how long they've had the business. So it goes without mm -hmm. saying that the longer they've owned that business, the more likely their, their egos intertwined with it. Um, how many hours they work, the more hours they work in the company, the more likely they are to have it uh, intertwined. If their surname 
And this is a big one. If their surname is in the company name, it's very difficult to separate their ego from it. So they'll, you know, it'll be like John Smith and Sons moving, right? And when John Smith, you know, when his sons decide they don't want to be in the business and he sells it, it's very difficult for John to see the trucks drive around town uh, knowing that he no longer controls how customers are served. So if you're, if your last name's in the company name, that can be a, a, a predictor of, wow. a yeah. Um, the other one, the, the one you can try as well, if you, if you want, is to say, if you were going to have a big party, like if you were going to host a, a Christmas party, a wedding, a bar mitzvah, some big celebration, who would you invite? Would it be mostly people from work, some people from work or nobody from work? And then the, the, the right answer, the one that will lead to less, you know, sadness after you sell is, is probably nobody from work. Even though right. I'm not suggesting you don't have friendships at work and that you don't treat employees, you know, in a collegial manner. Uh, but if your social life is dependent on your company and you sell your company, well, you're not only selling your company, you're also basically eliminating your social life, which wow. is... Why owners, no matter how rich they are, tend to regret the decision to sell? Yeah, well, now it's making perfect sense because at first, when you said seventy-five percent, I was thinking that is tragic, and, and it is tragic. But it makes yeah, sense to me yeah. now why that would be. It's then who are you? Ugh. Yeah, All but right. there's some things that you can do, Diane. It's it, and your listeners can do them. There's these four steps you can take that 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 ensure that you will ultimately feel happy and satisfied with your exit. You're, you know, you know, the research that we did showed that, that, you know, if you, if you don't take these four steps, then, then the chances are you are going to regret it. But, 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 but again, there's, there's some things you can do to allay that concern. And we've talked about a couple of them today already. We talked about the idea of really crystallizing your vision for the future. What are you excited to go do? Um, and, and, and two, sort of separating your ego from your business and trying to really cultivate the other hats that you wear in your life and, 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 and defining value, self-worth from those other roles that you, uh, that you play. And I'm going to use that as a teaser because I got to do a sponsor break and then I want to talk about the other two, you know, other sure. things that people can do on the other side. Okay, cool. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are Breathe to Succeed by Sandy Abrams, and Leading Loyalty by Lena Renee. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, explore the books that are of interest to you, and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're speaking with John Morlow about some new research around the topic of a life without regret after business. And John, before we move on there, I have a question about... Um, I should have known this before we started this, but your books are on Audible. Is that oh, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, That's yeah. That's what I thought. Okay, good. So see, guys, you can get John's books as well. So we have Built to Sell, 
and the automatic What's, customer. That's right, the automatic customer. I have both of them. I, I can't believe I didn't remember that. But yes, so awesome. So there's two books you could listen to on Audible. Okay. Um, so let's talk about the other drivers of a satisfying exit. So we did the two, uh, having a very clear future vision and identifying, uh, getting your, uh, unwinding your ego from uh, your business. Yeah. So the, yeah, another, another one comes down to being able to look back on the sale of your company, knowing that you got a fair price, not necessarily the maximum dollar value ever sold you know, for a business of your size of your industry, but you got a fair price. A lot of business owners pull up and I see this on the podcast. Cause I'll ask when I, when I do an interview with an owner, I'll say, Hey, you know, do you think you left money on the table? And oftentimes they'll say, well, you know, I'm not sure. I, you know, I, I don't know because I only did. And the reason they don't know is because they negotiated with one buyer. They got stuck in what's called in M&A parlance, a proprietary deal where they sign a letter of intent with one buyer and they never create a marketplace for their company. And so the secret here is to make sure that when you do go to sell your business, you don't get suckered into a proprietary deal. And, and, and buyers, acquirers, whether they're private equity groups or corporate buyers or even some individuals, they are trying to get you to agree to a proprietary deal. Uh, the reason for that is, of course, as soon as you basically sign a letter of intent, which almost always includes a no-shop clause, meaning you lose the ability to shop your business to other potential acquirers, once you've signed that, your, your leverage is gone. Your ability to negotiate with anybody else is gone. And as a result, uh, you, you will always, in, in many cases, you will always wonder, man, did I leave money on the table? And it doesn't matter if you sell your business for five times earnings, two times earnings, or 20 times earnings. If, if you just do one deal with one buyer, it's very natural to think, man, maybe I left money on the table. So the, the secret to ensuring you don't live with regret is to create a marketplace for your company, multiple buyers. And what I would counsel you to do uh, in order to maximize the number of people that are interested in buying your company is to approach the sale of your biz, uh, business with a spirit of flexibility, meaning you're open to a variety of different acquisition models. It could be a, you know, an outright acquisition. It could be where you agree to help the new buyer finance part of the sale. It could be where there's an earnout where you take a portion of your proceeds and put them at risk and, and, and agree to stay on for a couple of years. There are all these different mechanisms that buyers will use to try to help them kind of monetize what they purchased and keeping you in, in, um, in, in place for a period of time. And for a lot of owners, when they hear me say things like earn out or vendor take back, they, get, they kind of get squeamish and think, oh, I don't want any of that. I want 100% of cash up, up front or, or nothing. And while I agree that would be ideal, it doesn't give you enough buyers because most buyers will want you to stick around for a year or two. And the only way you get like multiple offers for your company is to remain flexible and open to different structures. And so I would not go into the sale of my business rigidly clinging to the idea that it's got to be cash at closing. Uh, remain open to this idea of structuring some portion of the sale. That's going to maximize the bidders. 
and ensure that when you look back on it a year, five, 10 years down the road, you're not going to regret it thinking, man, could I have gotten more? Well, you'll know if you could have gotten more because you will have gotten multiple people to the table. Awesome. That, yeah. I, I, so they really need to um, slow down, I guess, a little. Do you think that, do you think that some of them uh, go ahead and, and get into that situation with one buyer because they're afraid there aren't going to be other buyers? No, it's, it's usually because they're flattered right? Ah. You've been running your company for 15 years, 20 years, uh, and somebody all of a sudden notices and legitimizes you, validates you and says, wow, what you built is amazing. Going back to the ego idea. So, you know, a company like Nike or Google or American Express comes along and says, we love your company. We can't believe what you're doing. We think you're amazing. We would love to have you part of our family. What do you think the owner says, having worked in obscurity and relative anonymity for 20 years, right? And Coca-Cola yeah. has noticed you. You can't help but feel flattered by that, right? Yeah. You can't help but yeah. just be enveloped in this warm sense of, wow, Coca-Cola has validated the last 20 years of my life, right? And yeah. you want me to fly to Atlanta to hear how we could partner together? Yes, sir, I'll be on the first flight down. Yeah. Right? And I don't mean to say this in a, I don't mean to sound as condescending as I'm sounding. I, I, I have personally firsthand felt this sense of feeling flattered when people are, are interested in your company or they send you the letter saying, we're looking for companies just like yours. And there's a sense of really, are they really looking for companies like mine? Um, and so those are all techniques that corporate development executives and private equity buyers use to, to essentially lock you up. They use your naivete. They, they use your ignorance about the process and they take advantage of you. And they say, look, we would love you to fly to Atlanta. We'd love for you to learn about Coca-Cola and, and, and we'd love to hear all about your company. We just need you to sign this letter of intent that says you won't sort of you know, cheat on us through the process. So that you know, we know that you're kind of getting engaged to us and you won't you know, you know, negotiate with, with other, other folks along the way, but, but we're part of the family now. So you'd, you'd be willing to sign that, wouldn't you? And guess what? We signed the letter of intent and a year later, sure enough, we're a division of Coke. Uh, but we wonder, man, did we get, did we get totally hosed here in the process? Wow. Ugh, which has got to be a terrible, terrible feeling. Yeah, so again, the way to avoid it, yeah, the way you won't know and you'll never know. Uh, the way to avoid it is to make sure that, uh, you know, Coke could approach you or Nike or Google, any of these big companies could approach you. What you really want to do uh, is make sure you create a marketplace. That's best run by an intermediary. Like you wouldn't sell your home without a real estate agent. Most people wouldn't. Yeah. Um, you should have someone representing it. That's not what I do. I, I'm not a I'm not a broker. I'm not an M&A professional. But I would definitely encourage you to get one, if uh, you, you know if you're gonna if you're gonna go through this process. It, it's um, it's important. Yeah, because you need that objective person who knows how the game is played, and doesn't you know have that ego investment to feel flattered or yeah, and they can anything. yeah they can they can be a foil for your emotions both positive and negative, right? So they can slow yeah. you down when you're overly 
uh, enamored by an overly flattered by company, you can, they can say, hold on a second, let's slow down. If Coke's interested, chances are Pepsi's going to be interested too. Uh, yeah, they can spray right. At the same time, they can also be the foil where, you know, three months into due diligence, when the analyst has asked you for the, the same lease document that you've sent them six times, <laughs> they can also be the foil that says, don't get pissed off at the buyer. Let me tell them they've asked for this six times already because it's frustrating to sell your business because the buyer is going to want to get totally get you totally naked and totally reveal every nuance of your company. And that can be incredibly frustrating for owners. So you need a foil for both the positive and the negative. That's really interesting. Okay. Okay. And what's the fourth driver of a success of satisfying exit? Yeah. The four, and by the way, these four drivers are in this tool Prescore, which stands for personal readiness to exit. So you can go to prescore.com and, and, and you can get your score on these four dimensions. So it's not like this esoteric kind of concept. Cool. But you can actually see how you're, you're scoring on these four things. The fourth one um, relates to uh, being proactive about how you tell your team. So here's the thing. When I hit stop on the record button of my podcast, um, I often, you know, we'll, we'll enter into a little chit chat back and forth with the guest, and I'll say, thanks for the interview. And, and they'll say, man, I wish I could have told you X because I can't really share with it because I signed a non-disclosure agreement with the buyer or, you know, my employees would be upset if I told them X, but here's this real story. And more often than not, what I hear when business owners sell their company is that they wish they had a do-over or a mulligan on how they told their employees. They get so wrapped up in the actual negotiation of the sale of their company, they get so focused on getting to the finish line that they don't think about the people that brought them to the dance in the first place, right? So, wow. you know, once you've got lots of zeros in the bank, the next zero doesn't really mean that much. What means a lot is how you reflect personally on the way your employees were treated Again, for many owners, they're, they're family members. If they're not actually bloodline, they, they become as close to blood as, as you can be. And when you sell, oftentimes they will feel uh, like you weren't taking care of them, that you, that you, that you pulled the, wool out, uh, the rug out from under them. And so what I'm not suggesting is that you go tell your employees because any M&A professional worth their salt will tell you that that's a mistake that employees probably should never find out that you've sold your company until the check's cleared. But what I would recommend you do is be really thoughtful and intentional about how you're going to tell your employees. What are the circumstances? Are, is it in the boardroom? Is the buyer in the room? Have you incentivized them? Have you given them a piece of the action? Have you provided uh, you know, job security for them and the part of the transition? Have you insisted that the new owner, for example, not move your office for a period of time or your location for a period of time so that those people don't get disrupted? All these things you should think about in advance of selling uh, most people don't, right? Most people, we get, we get so kind of wired up and fired up in the process of the actual negotiation that the people who are going to be most impacted, i.e. the employees who are going to stay, are, are almost an afterthought. Again, I'm not saying you go tell your employees, but I am saying you think really 
really proactively about how you want them to be treated. And then make sure that if you can, um, you know, you either legally or morally bind the new buyer to what's important to you. And usually that comes down to making sure employees, you know, are, are you know, their, their contracts are honored, their health benefits are honored, uh, the location remains the same for a period of time. Like these are all things that mean something to the employees that brought you to the table. I think that's really critical. And I like the, the part about um, making it binding, mm-hmm. you know, ha- having it mean so much to you that you, that it's part of the negotiation that you aren't necessarily going to enter into it because, you know, if, if they're not willing to do that, because boy, you know, karma's a crazy thing and how you treat these people <laughs> can mean a lot. It, yeah. It, and, it really, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, um, you know, I've lived this firsthand. I, I sold uh, my last business in 2009 and there were people in that company that I wished I had done. I, I wished I had handled it differently. And to this day, where, where are we? You know, 10 years on, I still, uh, to some extent dread running into them on the street or, or wish I could, you know, explain my thinking. You know, I just handled it clumsily. In some cases, I was, I, I was interviewing a woman who did a much better job than I did. She was in Minnesota and they had built their location for this company um, in a beautiful part of Minnesota, close to a lake. And it was, I mean, part of the value proposition for employees was, was they, you know, it was the location, right? It was, it was the proximity. A lot of them were family. They were able to you know, raise their family in this proximity, this location, and they were being acquired by a, a, an out-of-state company. And she wrote it into the agreement. She said that I will sell you this business with one condition. That is, you don't move this office or these people for a period of five years. Um, and wow. that was, that was part of her negotiation, you know, even though it, 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 uh, it possibly was a roadblock, you know, roadblock for the acquirer. It was, yeah. that, it was that important to him. Yeah, I guess that's what it's about, though, right? When you talk about a satisfying exit, it's about what do you want? Mm-hmm. Where do you want, you know, what do you want to do afterward? What do you want the experience to be? What do you, for you and for the people who uh, work for you, right? Just, just mm-hmm. what... For me, I keep coming back to how do you want to feel every day after? Because mm-hmm. that's all those things, right? Running into people in the grocery store and, and all of that is how do you want to wake up in the morning and, and feel? I get it. People need to really think about that. Yeah, and it, you bet. And it comes back to this idea where we started and that is thinking through your pull factors, your vision for the future, uh, because that's where it all starts is because is, so many of us sell a business because we have to, right? Because, oh, I, I need to retire or my health isn't great or my spouse wants to travel more or I can't stand my employees or the market's tapped out for my company. All these are what we call push factors, right? These are all things that are, yeah. that are frustrating you. And as we talked about earlier, it's getting clear on the pull factors like are you excited to get fit or start a charity or start another business or travel the world what is it that is really getting your juices flowing 
codifying that, getting clear. If it's travel, where to? Is it Spain? We're in Spain. Is it Torremolinos? Is it Madrid? Getting really clear on what you're excited to go do uh, because that's what is gonna, gonna give you a new sense of purpose after, after selling. Right. And why is it important for people to think about this, even if they're not ready to sell or even if they're not sure they would ever sell? Sure. So I think ever is a long time, right? So I think we all are eventually going to sell, whether it's our state selling our business because we go out boots first or whether it's, you know, a retirement issue, et cetera. So being thoughtful in advance, I think is, is going to be important. The big thing I think is it's, it's the world's greatest insurance policy to have a sellable company. It doesn't mean you want to sell anytime soon, but if you've got a company that's attractive to buyers, you're getting inbound unsolicited offers, man, you're in the catbird seat, right? I mean, you, you, you have negotiation leverage because you're being courted. You have the ultimate insurance policy. So if something goes wrong, something goes wrong for you, your spouse, Anything that happens to you, you can flip a switch and sell that company. Um, you know, I think it's the ultimate uh, insurance policy. So, so that's, that's what I would say to having a bit. The other thing, you know, if we think more broadly, not just to be making sure you're personally ready, but to ensure that your business is also ready, um, you know, the things that drive up the value of your company will make your business a better company. Not only will it make it more sellable, it'll make it more enjoyable to run. You know, we all open our 401k statements, right? We all open, you know, when somebody sells their home down the street from us, we're, we're kind of curious about what they got for it. It doesn't mean we want to sell our house, but you kind of want to know the value of your house is going up uh, or the value of your 401k is going up. It doesn't mean you want to sell and liquidate the investments. It means you just want that peace of mind. So, right. you know, having it, Knowing your business is going up in value every year is, I think, a great, uh, a great sense of peace of mind and accomplishment. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Okay, so um, what's the most surprising piece of information you discovered from the research? Really good question. I think it really was the proportion of owners who ultimately regretted the decision to sell. I mean, we talked about it earlier, 75% of owners when surveyed one year after the sale end up regretting the decision to sell. Just 5% of owners say they're satisfied with the net proceeds of the company they sold. In other words, the cash they were able to uh, you know, acquire as a result of selling their company, it's just 5%. It's probably those two statistics are the most surprising data points, you know, especially when you think of them in the context of what else is going on in the marketplace, right? So we know if you look at the Small Business Administration numbers in the United States, for example, we know uh, that more than eight out of 10 businesses never celebrate their 10th birthday, right? They go out of business. Uh, we know that, that the majority of businesses that, that do survive their 10th birthday and are put on the market that are sold, in other words, the business broker, IBBA, the International Business Broker Association, has published stats that of all of the businesses that are listed for sale, less than half of them are actually sell. So these, if you think about it, are the best in class, right? These are the ones that get through the 10-year pump and they, they're successful and they go to sell. Less than half of them are sellable. So... So for the ones that remain, the ones that do get past the 10-year hump and are sellable, 
you'd think they'd be happy, <laughs> but they're not. <laughs> and, and so that's really what I find to be quite startling. And, um, but as I said, there's some things you can do. We talked about them today uh, to ensure you're not part of the, uh, uh, the folks who end up regretting it. Exactly. It's so great, John. I really appreciate the information and I would love it if you would share with the listeners, you know, um, how they can find you, what you've got going on, you know, you already, you mentioned uh, prescore.com, but just, you know, give us what everyone needs to know and how they can reach out to you, please. For sure. So if you're interested in evaluating your personal readiness to exit, there's a short questionnaire available at prescore.com. The other side of the ledger is how ready your company is to exit. So there's personal readiness, but there's also company readiness. And if you're interested to learn how ready your company is to exit, you can simply go to valuebuilder.com. Terrific. Thank you. Thanks for taking the time and sharing this, this research and what you learned. It really is um, astounding, but I think it's also empowering for the people who, you know, haven't sold already, who are starting to go through all of this to know what the possibilities are, but also what they can do. It's just, you know, it's very, um, it, I think it's liberating to know there are things you can do to prepare and actually have a satisfying exit. So, well, thank, thank, thank you. Thank you for helping me get the, uh, the message out. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And listeners, thank you. Those of you who, um, maybe hadn't been thinking about this or have been. This has been some great information for you. I'd also like to thank our sponsor. If you would like a free trial of audible.com as well as a free audiobook, just go to audibletrial.com slash business growth to sign up. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzwar, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next-door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you want to learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life, we've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts, and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.